0: Hi, I'm Ian Hannah Mansing. Welcome to CheckUp's Ask Me Anything podcast. And today that means you're about to hear our AMA about COVID subvariants and what to expect this fall. Anything!
1: Health officials in British Columbia have confirmed the first known Canadian case of a highly mutated variant of COVID 19.
0: Back to school on the horizon and the potential for another wave of flu, RSV, and COVID. Similar to what we saw last fall, there is some concern in the health community.
1: I wonder now that we've gone through so many variants, whether these original uh, round of tests
0: are still valid. Another highly mutated variant of COVID has arrived in Canada. The first known case of BA2.86 COVID virus was detected in British Columbia. That's one of the reasons why doctors and health officials are approaching the next couple of months with some concern. And that's the focus of this week's Ask Me Anything with Dr. Zane Chagla. He's an infectious diseases physician at St. Joseph's Healthcare, which is a hospital in Hamilton. He's also an associate professor of medicine at McMaster University. He joined us to take your questions about COVID and new subvariant and the fall season. Here are some highlights from the show. Dr. Chagla, thank you very much for joining us.
2: Uh, thanks for having me, Ian.
0: Let's start with the new variant. Health officials in British Columbia said in a statement, uh, and here's a quote, there doesn't seem to be increased severity with this new strain. Um, what should we know about this variant?
2: Still very early days, uh, so this was discovered a couple of weeks ago, and and you know around the world, people who do sequencing, so looking at the genetic code of of the viruses circulating, how we discover variants, upload them to large international databases, and so one sequence popped out of Denmark that looked very different. It was very close to BA two, and so BA two, as you remember, was the Omicron variant that circulated in around March April of twenty twenty two kind of disappeared when newer variants took over. And then, you know, this, this sequence showed up that looked very much as if it had dropped off the family tree in that and, and showed up very later. It was a concerning because there's a number of mutations that made it very different than BA2. And in fact, the number of mutations we're talking about is almost the difference between the original virus and Omicron to, you know, Omicron to this virus that we see out there. The odd thing was it didn't seem to be um, localized to a single place. Uh, As more people started looking, uh, particularly places that have access to good sequencing, like ourselves in Canada, the United States, the United Kingdom, Denmark, Israel, uh, they started finding it. And they started finding it in people that had not traveled, suggesting it had probably been on our soil for some time and circulating around the world. There is concern that these mutations may lead to more antibody evasion, But a couple of things that have come up recently. Number one is that we are looking at many of these cases. um, They're being identified as people that just had surveillance testing who are mildly symptomatic. uh, And so no suggestion of an increase in severity. Number two, a, a couple of preprints that have shown up. One suggesting that although this may evade immunity a little bit better... Um, that the ability for this virus to actually get into cells is actually a bit worse than currently circulating variants. And that might explain why it really hasn't taken off as fast as we would expect. And the third is, you know, even some data that, that was uh, looked at a, a day or so ago, suggesting that there may be still some cross-antibody formation with some of the variants circulating now. So, you know, the, the good news being that potentially that vaccines, especially the updated vaccines, will continue to work. People that have recently had an infection may not be reinfected. Uh, and that, you know, again, that that it's kind of around the world and it's not really causing an epidemic spread. Much more current variants seem to be causing a, a growth that we're seeing across the world, but not
0: particularly this. Uh, Cheriz Kelso is in Toronto. Hi, Cheriz.
2: Hi,
1: Ian. You?
0: Uh, what's your question for Dr. Chagla? <laughs>
1: So I'm a a high school teacher and we start classes on Tuesday. And I'm just wondering about the efficacy of a few students and a few members of staff wearing masks versus, you know, a time when we were all wearing them. Um, Is there still value for the very small minority that are still doing masks if the majority aren't?
0: Yeah, great question. Dr. Chagla?
2: So, really good question, and so i would I will still say that one way masking with a good high quality fitted mask that that stays on your face and stays in uh, you know above your nose and mouth you know still provides really good protection. Remember, we're still seeing covid patients that's our line of defense to deal with them is is wearing a mask uh, as part of that interaction, and so it still provides protection to the user on an individual basis, and certainly if you you know want to use it as an additional layer of protection it's it's a great way to do it. You know, from a population standpoint, obviously there was a a small benefit and, you know, again, it it was there with population based masking in the context of everyone wearing a mask and, and offering a bit of source control. But at the same time, I think if you wear a good, high-quality fitted mask as part of your prevention pathway, you know, you're doing what a healthcare worker essentially would do. And, and again, you know, uh, expo- lower your exposure risk in that sense.
0: You know, Dr. Chagla, um, during the, the height of the pandemic, people were super careful in lots of ways, including, you know, when they were sick, you know, taking great precautions. And and I, I feel like that's slipping now. Uh, and so, you know, I was uh, at a, an airport the other day and somebody's coughing, coughing coughing, coughing at the gate. And I was thinking, man, like, I, I don't think that person would have gotten away with that uh, a couple of years before. <laughs> I mean, mas- masking is a big contentious issue and complicated and will probably come up again in the AMA. But let's put that aside for a moment. What about the the sort of uh, pandemic uh, kind of uh, guideline of staying home if you're sick? I assume that's still pretty important.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Look, I, I realize people are done with this and they want to go back to life as normal. There are simple things, though. That's the 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 reality is that, you know, we have come into a place where coming to work while sick is more frowned upon than it was in 2019, recognizing that it's an easy intervention if you're able to stay at home or if not, you know, wear a mask while your symptoms are ongoing. Similarly, you know, for those uh, individuals, um, you know, for everyone washing their hands and, and, you know, not only the protection of COVID along with masking, but um, the protection from other respiratory viruses and other pathogens that may transmit during the season. Um, and, you know, again, for, for those folks out there staying up to date with their immunizations, you know, including the COVID immunization, which I'm sure is going to show up, the influenza immunization, um, and, you know, the new RSV immunization for certain populations that will be offered likely in this uh, fall. And a reminder, again, that, you know, for, for people who are particularly vulnerable, taking all those steps helps, making sure that you, you know, get tested when you have COVID or have COVID symptoms, because it's a pathway to treatment, still helps. And so... We really do still have a, a big toolbox that that's there for folks to to protect them from COVID-19. It's up to people to, you know, access them. But at the same time, you know, we really can make sure that most people still have good outcomes, just doing pretty simple things in that sense.
0: Yeah. And, and you know, to that point about the testing, again, is something I hadn't really thought about. And Dr. Saxinger mentioned it a few weeks ago on this program, a reminder that. You know, if you get tested, you test positive, uh, you can get, you know, some antiviral treatments that uh, have really been a game changer. But who is it that should, in particular, uh, be looking at, uh, at at those kinds of treatments uh, if they do test positive, Dr. Chagla?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So big risk factors are age. So, you know, different provinces have different criteria, but somewhere between 60 and 70 um, if people are, you know, in those risk groups who haven't been immunized recently or had an infection recently, that puts them even at higher risk. Uh, people with multiple comorbidities, things like diabetes, cardiac disease, liver disease, kidney disease, uh, neurologic disease, um, that can put them at higher risk. And then finally, uh, people who live in long-term care, where there's a, you know, a frailty factor associated with that, and people who are immunocompromised, and and that is really a big group that. The advent of treatments and useful treatments has really, really reduced the risk of hospitalization along with vaccinations. And so, you know, again, it's a simple intervention. Most provinces now have, you know, direct to pharmacy prescribing uh and so, you know, those people who are at high risk, it's it's not a big deal, you know, you get your plan in place, you have your tests in place, you get up to date with your vaccines uh and then, you know, when you do develop symptoms, you just know where to go at that point to to uh to get treatment and and again, the outcomes are are very very good in in those individuals.
0: But the window, I guess, to start taking that antiviral or those antivirals is is fairly limited, right? Like uh, earlier on in the pandemic, I think I heard within 5 days of infection? Where where are we at right now? With No,
2: similarly with Paxlovid, which is the the major kind of drug, it's five days. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, what I I talk to folks about is if you're in that high risk category, first of all, look to provincial recommendations to see if you're high risk, but do the planning beforehand. Don't do it when you get COVID, right? Get your test, know how to do a test, know who you're going to call when you get a positive result, know how to get access to the treatment. You could do that well before the, the development of symptoms. So that, that five days is very preserved, basically. So it's not a big barrier in the sense that as long as it's planned out, people can still access treatment appropriately. It's really just recognizing the symptoms are there, getting a test, and then finding someone to, to prescribe it.
0: Yeah, great advice. Dr. Zane Chagla here to answer your questions about uh, COVID. I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week, we answer vital health questions that will help
2: you thrive. Like, what does my mental health have to do with my gut? How can I prevent melanoma? How much sleep do I really need? And how can I manage my health without a family doctor? I chat with the top experts to bring you the latest evidence in plain language,
0: all in about 20 minutes. Find the dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Related issues. Sheila McLaurin is in Cars, Ontario. Hi, Sheila.
1: Hi, hello to you both. Following up on your comments about testing, Dr. Iris Gorfinkel, who's a regular CBC health columnist, was interviewed uh, recently and she referenced with regards to rapid home tests that if you were using it the way it was originally designed to be used, you would not generate enough of a virus sample and she referenced the recommendation of the then Ontario Science Advisory Table, which she refers to as the five-by-five rule that you need to swab both sides between your gums, lower mouth, both sides between your gum and teeth, your back of your throat, and deep in both nostrils, and then you have a chance of generating enough of a virus sample. And she said that if your first test was negative, to repeat it within two days. And some of the reasons she gave was to be able to access Paxlovid within the five-day window and also to reduce the possibility of spread, but also to be able to accurately evaluate your risk for potential uh, long COVID.
0: Mm -hmm. And so what's your question, Sheila, for Dr. Chagla?
1: I'm interested in his comments about use of the rapid home test in this way.
0: Dr. Chagla?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, as you said, it's actually, you know, quite right what you had mentioned. Usually say back of the throat, kind of both sides of the tonsils, both nostrils, you know, make sure you're getting a lot of tissue with that, not just kind of in the dead space. But there was great data, actually, from uh, a colleague of mine that many of you know, Lisa Barrett uh, in in Halifax, that, you know, suggested that the positivity rate is a bit higher in people that are positive when they do Again, more tissue in the mouth and both nares or nostrils. Uh, And then doing the test. The other thing I would say is if you haven't done a test before, do it beforehand so that you know what a negative looks like, how to do a test and and not in the moment of, you know, when you're sick to try to figure out how to do it properly. The recommendation is to repeat testing, usually in someone that's symptomatic, three tests over 48 hours based on some data from the United States, usually kind of correlates whether or not this is really COVID, especially if you're symptomatic versus, you know, another respiratory virus, which could very much replicate symptoms, especially in this day and age. But yeah, absolutely. Great advice. And, and again, making sure that particularly if people have not used these rapid tests or not used them in a while, make sure you do one beforehand when you're feeling great, just so you know what you're doing and how to troubleshoot it if you if you don't know what you're doing in that sense.
0: All right, let's go to a question from uh, a listener in Vancouver, Anne-Marie. And her her question, Dr. Chagla, is, and I'll just read it here, will there be an alternative to an mRNA shot for those who are unable to take mRNA shots for immune reasons?
2: Yeah, so uh, this is uh, exciting, but, you know, as we will get updated vaccines directed to the XPB variant in Moderna and Pfizer vaccines, Um, Novavax, which is a a vaccine that's protein-based, so kind of more towards a traditional vaccine model, um, will also be updating its vaccine. So the Novavax vaccine has actually been available in Canada for a few years. It came in a little bit after the mRNA vaccine, so there wasn't a big calling for it, but there will be an updated Novavax uh, XBB vaccine that they will be submitting to Health Canada. It's still to see whether or not it'll be approved, Um, but that will be an alternative that is a protein-based vaccine. And Uh, At least, you know, hopefully based on some of the data for Novavax uh, prior to to Omicron emergence, you know, would hopefully be an effective vaccine as a booster. And and certainly there is some booster data for Novavax with prior vaccines to suggest it does a fairly good job at doing that.
0: Sue Borland is in Sherwood Park, Alberta, and she's on the phone. Hi, Sue.
2: Hello.
0: Uh, What's your question for Dr. Chagla?
3: Well, I'm wondering that I had COVID before last year and I lost my sense of smell and taste, which never came back. And I'm wondering now if, uh, since I've got the second one, or I just had the second one, if that means I have long COVID. And I mean, nobody seems to be terribly interested in long COVID when it's just not very important seeming things like losing your sense of taste and smell. But it's kind of an awful thing not to have you know mm-hmm. so i was wondering if uh, the doctor had any any uh, suggestions about that the other thing i would like to say just quickly is that paxlovid which my doctor prescribed for me and i and i've just i've got one more day to go with it it really made a huge difference to to the severity of uh, covid last year i was had about 2 weeks of uh, really bad Pain and so forth, uh, but this time it was. I feel much better.
0: You know what, Sue? I'm gonna I'm gonna put your question to uh, Dr. Chagla, but I think maybe break it up into two different things. And so, Dr. Chagla, first of all, Sue has not had uh, smell or taste since she first tested positive for uh, COVID uh, maybe a year ago, um, and so she's kind of wondering what's what's the prognosis uh, in terms of, of being able to smell things and taste things.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a symptom that we saw, you know, particularly prior to Omicron, although still exists prior to post-Omicron in that sense. Some people do get their taste and smell back, but it takes time for for a number of individuals. Um, but, you know, it, the, the prognosis is good for most. nausea is a symptom that tends to stick around a little bit more. And so some people may be left with some degree of it. It is disconcerting to some people for sure, but there are, you know, more, there is a lot of research in this field to, to really see what can be done to kind of regenerate those pathways and get people smelling and tasting properly again.
0: And let's talk about long COVID. I see, especially on social media, lots of concerns about long COVID, um, complaints that the media are not paying enough attention to long COVID. Um, do we even know, like, is there a clinical definition of what long COVID is and data on how many people are uh have it?
2: Yeah, it's a it's a it's a complex question, but I would say, you know, long COVID is defined as persistent symptoms that are unexplained by another reason. Uh, three or months later after that COVID diagnosis. And so it is a pretty broad definition. Uh, you know, we we see a, a huge variety of things. Early in the pandemic, we had post-acute COVID from people that were critically ill and and they didn't recover, uh, you know, fully back to steam. And, and even some of those folks I still see today that are still suffering from that COVID in 2020, we see people who are generally, you know, well, who had a pretty mild COVID infection, but have persistent symptoms like anosmia, fatigue, brain fog, muscle aches, rashes, you know, a number of other manifestations. You know, long COVID is real. It does, you know, affect people. It, it causes suffering. When we look at studies really trying to control those, so this is the the most important part is the literature evolves. There's very different ways it's measured. When we look at the control group, so the number of people who test negative or who are followed, pro, you know, longitudinally through the pandemic, who are compared to those people who had COVID-19, the differences are not as big as we think. It may be a few percent higher. So the risk, you know, a few percent per infection. We see sur- survey studies from 10 to 30 to 40 percent. But again, in those studies, p- the people that respond tend to be the ones that are suffering in that sense. And so you may not get an accurate gauge of the population.
0: All right, Dr. Chagla, thank you. Let's go to uh, a question that I thought was going to come up a little earlier, a really important one from Maureen Pecknold in Guelph, Ontario. Hi, Maureen. Hi. Uh, Thank you very much for calling in. What's your question for Dr. Zane Chagla?
1: Oh, thank you, doctor. I'm just wondering if we're going to get a booster for the COVID vaccine this fall. Is it better to go ahead and do it now before everybody starts getting this new variant? Or is it better to wait until they've got the vaccines that address this variant?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I don't think we're going to see a vaccine to ba 2.86. It's going to take a little bit of time to go through that pathway. The current vaccines that are kind of going through the production cycle are against the XBB variant. So the one, you know, that started circulating December, January last year, many of the current variants are descendants from that. So again, the the vaccines seem to have good responses to that. I would say for most individuals, because the vaccine is likely going to come towards the end of this month or early next month, it's probably worth it to wait to that point because, again, the update in protection is probably a whole lot better with this vaccine than what's currently on the market. You know, bottom line, most people should wait. Again, the the very few that are at highest risk uh, or, or impending immune suppression should consider getting it now. But, uh, you know, the hope is that, that we'll have this really soon and, again, uh, will be
0: distributed pretty effectively. Well, from the complicated science answers to the straightforward, easy to follow advice, Dr. Chagla, it's fantastic hearing from you, and I really appreciate you giving us a half hour on this Sunday afternoon. Take care. That was a portion of Cross Country Checkup's AMA on COVID, a new subvariant, and the fall. We were joined by Dr. Zane Chagla, an infectious diseases physician at St. Joseph's Healthcare, which is a hospital in Hamilton. He's also an associate professor of medicine at McMaster University. If you'd like to listen to our full two-hour edition of Cross Country Checkup, you can find it by downloading or streaming the podcast at cbc.ca slash checkup or the CBC Listen app. And if you'd like to share comments or appear on the show, go to cbc.ca slash aircheck. I'm Ian Mansing Thanks for listening. The next live edition of Checkup airs on CBC Radio 1 and CBC News Network next Sunday. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.